I encourage you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We continue in our series in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Going to begin reading in verse 14. We'll read through the 18th verse. Our focus this morning will be limited to essentially verses 14 and 15. The Apostle Paul writes to this beloved congregation. Verse 14, do all things, or more literally, all things do without grumbling or questioning. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be proud as a drink offering poured out upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray together. Father, it is a bold command of Paul's Everything, accepting nothing, to be done without grumbling or questioning. Father, we confess that this alone throws us onto the cross and onto Christ. Not a one of us has a hope of obeying this perfectly, even remotely. Lord, so we ask you this morning for your power, your resources, your renewing grace. Would you, Lord, be pleased by the work of your Spirit, degree by degree, as you have promised to change us into the image of Christ. So we ask it now in his name. Amen. Many of you have watched the amazing power of a display of lightning at some point in your life. It is simultaneously beautiful and fearful. The closer it is with the thunder, the more awe-inspiring it is. How brilliantly the sky will light up amidst the darkness of the clouds or the nighttime sky. Some years ago, I was on a plane returning from uh, some event for the life of the church, and and I was off in the distance able to see a lightning storm above the clouds on the horizon many, many miles away. It was one of the most stunning things I've ever seen in my life. All I could really do as I watched it was to be in awe of creation and in awe of creation's maker. It is just this manner of 
brilliant light set against the darkness that Paul is speaking of here, that the Lord has called us and he's equipped us to live as his people, as luminaries in the midst of the darkness. We are to stand out. We are to become in Christ those who amidst the darkness, as Paul says, the crooked and twisted generation in which we live, that we stand out as a straight arrow in the midst of that twistedness. As sons and daughters of the living God, he sets us as the moon and the stars and the sun by which our world is to be lighted. Now look with me at verses 14 and 15. The language here, though it doesn't appear to be so on the surface, is taken from the multiple Old Testament descriptions of the generation of the Israelites that wandered in the desert before the Lord under Moses. They repeatedly grumbled and complained about their hardships, and they were often chastened by the Lord. In fact, in Deuteronomy 32, Moses describes them as a perverse generation and an unfaithful children. It's a powerful description by Moses the mediator. But here's Paul's point. As those upon whom the fullness of the gospel has come, the fullness of God's grace in Jesus Christ, an altogether new spirit is meant to pervade us, to match the rich grace that has been poured out upon us. So I want you to look with me in the text at verses 14 and 15 as we embrace more fully what that grace is intended to accomplish. So our thrust this morning is really limited to verses 14 and 15, and we'll just focus on two themes this morning. The first thing that I want us to draw out from verse 15 is Paul's description of us as believers as the children of God. Listen to that phrase, the children of God, the sons and daughters of the living God. Read verse 15 with me, the first part that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now, as I mentioned, Paul is clearly drawing to mind the irony of the Old Testament community who, though they were God's covenant people, often acted like the nations around them. So Paul opens up verse 14 with a truly daunting command. All things do without grumbling or complaining. But Paul rarely gives commands without setting them in their context. In other words, if he is going to give an imperative, a command, he almost universally sets it in the context of the indicative, that which is already true. And so here he puts these exhortations into the terms of our position as children of God. That is the central hub around which this command rotates. Children of God without fault and a crooked and depraved generation. Just because you are the sons and daughters of the living God, so it must be that you must do all things with a new spirit. 
Now here's a picture for your mind's eye. In fact, I'm going to use the, the flower arrangement in front of me this morning. I noticed it when I came in early this morning. The difference between cut flowers and flowers that are still on the rooted plant. As soon as you cut, doesn't matter what kind of flower it is, as soon as you cut that flower, its death has begun. And in the case of some flowers, it's only a matter of hours. In the case of others, it might be a week or even two, but it will wilt and it will die. But a perennial can bloom all summer long. Over and over and over again, because it's constantly rooted in the soil. Look in the arrangement here. You'll see one of the hydrangea blooms, if it hasn't been pulled out, <laughs> that has been completely withered since it was delivered yesterday. These cut flowers are in the process of passing away. The Christian who loses sight of his rootedness his adopted nature in Jesus Christ is already wilting. As soon as we forget our position before the face of God, that place we hold as sons and daughters of God by grace, we begin to wilt. And so we've got to fight to daily understand this to root ourselves each new day in the soil of God's word of grace just as flowers are rooted in their soil. Let me read to you Paul's understanding of this in Romans 8. For you, brothers and sisters, did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What a remarkable statement. Children of God and fellow heirs with the eternal Son of God. All that belongs to Jesus as the eternal Son of God now belongs to us in Christ. Listen to the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3. See what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. As his children, we are the special objects of his care and favor and inseparable from his affectionate love. My daughter and son-in-law are in town visiting with us, and last night during the Mississippi State game, go dogs! <laughs> Our youngest grandchild of theirs that is with us, Wit, it was getting later in the evening, and he came and he sat on his dad's lap and chest. And it was just a joy for me to watch Wit in the arms of his dad, completely safe, carefree, secure, and delighted. That is a beautiful picture of where we are. Though it may often seem not to be the case, 
That is always the case. There is no father like our heavenly father. The best of our earthly fathers are a dim light by comparison. And the worst of our earthly fathers contrast with his infinite goodness and faithfulness in a remarkable way. This is the great soil of God's fatherly favor. And it is the soil out of which all of our Christian character and obedience grows. And so the theme of this limited portion of Philippians chapter 2 is that we as believers are to carry ourselves before the world with true integrity, what Paul calls children of God, blameless and without fault in a crooked world. Now look at verse 15 with me. Our word translated innocent means without mixture. The term in its original usage was used to speak of metals that were smelted in a furnace to burn off the dross so that they were more pure and more suited to their intended purpose. You see, Paul's speaking of the inward character of the heart of the believer birthed in the soul of a son or a daughter of God. Paul also speaks of blamelessness. This is the outward expression of that inward purity. In other words, a chaste life. And then notice that Paul adds this powerful phrase at the end of, of that middle sentence, without blemish. Now, Certainly, Paul does not mean that we are living lives that are sinless, that we never err before God nor before our neighbor. But his thrust is that we live in the pursuit of righteousness, that we live openly before God and one another. And so we are to pray for, to plead for, and to strive for that which David spoke of in Psalm 139. Listen to David. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David is begging God to have him work in him and out of him the very thing that Paul is speaking of here, that we live blameless before a twisted generation. It might be a prayer like this, O Lord, because I am your child. By the power of your transforming love, lead me away from every offense. Lead me to your character. O Father of infinite love and mercy, make me like you are. Have you ever heard a child say, and certainly you've read of it if you haven't heard it yourself, you've heard a child say, Daddy, I want to be like you when I grow up. That's a holy statement, rightly understood. Paul said we've been given the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, I want to be like you. When I grow up. 
That's to be our daily desire. And yet, as soon as we grasp the significance of our rootedness as sons and daughters of God, we are faced with that daunting exhortation in verse 14 of the Apostle Paul. Literally, everything do without grumbling or questioning. So in the second place this morning, we are commanded as an adopted child of the living God to do all things with a certain spirit, to do all things with a Christ-like spirit that is absent something. We are to be those who choose not to be caught up in destructive grumbling and arguing. And of course, again, the language here echoes back to the descriptions of the Old Testament Israelite people under the leadership of Moses. I read to you earlier Psalm 106 in the worship service. And also in the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy, you see it repeatedly. There's a profound and deeply saddening litany of the people of God grumbling and complaining and murmuring against the Lord. And here Paul is urging the Philippians and us to see the parallels between their complaints and our own. And he urges his readers and us not to follow their example. Now in the original language in verse 14, the Greek language a bit different than the English language. You can, by the case endings of the Greek language, you can throw the words of a sentence into a blender and mix them all up and pour them out, and you can still make sense of the understanding of the sentence. And you can move things around on purpose for the sake of emphasis, and so Paul has done so. Our English says, do all things. That's not what the Greek says. It says, all things do. And there's a logic to Paul's doing so. He's emphasizing that nothing excepting all things, everything, at all times and in all places. What a remarkable indictment of my heart. And I trust of yours also. How daunting a command this is. And how impossible if we forget our rootedness as sons and daughters of the Lord. Our grumbling and complaining arises from a stubborn spirit. Both in the Old Testament and in the New, as we bring all of the data together, grumbling and complaining is a moral rebellion against our doubt of the goodness of God, a moral rebellion against our misunderstanding of the goodness of God. We do not like that he perfects us through the hardships of this life. We do not like the divine surgeon's removal of our tumors. Murmurings are always rooted in our lost sense of God's true love for us. Listen to the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a physician-turned-pastor-scholar in London. There is nothing that leads to such havoc in the Christian life. There is nothing that so ruins life as a spirit of murmuring and complaining. 
It ruined the whole story of the ancient people, and it has ruined the Christian life and experience of many. It leads to a poor testimony. It brings disgrace and disrepute upon the Christian name. Brothers and sisters, let me apply that for a moment. I know of nothing that will destroy Christian community faster than murmuring and complaining. A spirit of murmuring and complaining is the death of Christian community. Our grumblings, dear ones, in the end is a complaint of our souls against God for how we perceive that He has treated us. Well, in my studies last week and this week, I thought that I might use a circumstance from our past as a church to illustrate this fight to do things without complaint and grumbling. It comes from the real-life wrestlings of a couple in our church that have long moved away from our community, and I use this with their permission. Many of you will remember, some of you, Nathan and Rebecca McNeil. Nine years ago, they were overseas seeking to adopt a child from Ukraine. I'm going to read from their blog post of August 2012 some very beautiful and honest postings of theirs. This is all their material. But this is something that I need you to understand. They had been praying for a year prior to going to the Ukraine for a young girl whom they had wanted to adopt. Her name was Luda. Her picture was everywhere in their house. They were praying for her on a daily basis. They actually flew to Ukraine and got there to go through the formalization of the adoption process. And when they got there, Luda said no. She refused to be adopted. It was a radical turn on a dime while they were already in Ukraine. You need to know that as the background. The McNeils could have chosen bitter complaint and stubborn grumbling over their disappointments and their hardships, but by the power of God's grace in them, by their rootedness in their adoption in Christ, they chose joy. Now, I warn you, there is a double entendre with the word joy, and we'll come back to it in a moment. It'll take several minutes for me to read through this, so listen to the story with delight, a true story. Today, at 2.30 in the afternoon, this is nine years ago, we will have a court hearing to adopt Sveta and not Luda into our family. The bureaucratic process that has come to this point has been fast, Surprisingly so, however emotional and mental the process has been anguishing. A few days ago, we came to understand something about Sveta that we had not known before. The difficulty was that Sveta has something wrong with her eyes, and it is a challenge for her. And it is not alone. Her vision is linked to other challenges that will make it harder for her to learn. We can't know yet what profound things this will do to affect her. We had asked about this possibility before seeking a referral for Sveta, and our understanding was that there were no issues. 
We became aware of the extent of Sveta's challenges only after we'd been visiting with her each day for a week. This has been exceedingly difficult for us. The swiftness of the process and the delay in information has made us feel hurried into an enormous decision with lifelong implications. It feels unfair in a way that we don't have longer to deliberate and that the information is so sparse. We spent a year with pictures of Luda on our refrigerator, and we have only spent two weeks with Sveta. We are looking to take on much more responsibility than we originally anticipated. Over the last few days, we have felt empty, sorrowful, conflicted, fearful, and small. Might that not be what you would have felt? But that's not where the story ends. The Lord has used Sveta to teach us the shallowness of our hearts. We have been part of a new adoption process with her that did not exist three weeks ago. But in fact, it did. It existed in the mind and intentions of God, who has known his plan for us and Sveta before the foundations of the earth were laid. For us, this process has seemed hurried and sparing of information, but the Lord has been teaching us through gentle questions. The Lord has posed these questions to us. Did I not know that Luda would say no to you? Did I not know before you wrote one girl aged 10 to 13 on your application, which girl I had in mind? Can I not direct the heart of a 10-year-old girl to seek you out as parents? Do I not know everything about Sveta? And when do you think I knew it? Can I decide when to tell you about Sveta's challenges? Do I not have the right to ask anything of you? And what do you think you will have to give up that is worth saying no? If I lead you, do you not think that it is to joy? And so we must face this. Can leaving our comforts and choosing the hardships that we see right ahead of us really be choosing joy? Today at 2.30 in a courtroom, we choose joy. For joy is to be Sveta's new name. We believe in the most solid of saviors. And if our guide is true, then what we can find can only be joy. So now in the courtroom, they're at a conference table, and at the end of the table sits a judge with a person on either side. They will address questions to us. The judge asks us questions as a prosecutor. He asked Rebecca that perhaps because of difficulties that we will face, we would bring Sveta back in a year. Rebecca said no. The judge asked Sveta whether she wanted to be adopted by us. She said yes. He asked her whether she liked us. She said she did. The orphanage director said that Sveta was a sweet girl and very helpful, that she'd been in the orphanage for six years and had never been visited by anyone. Were there objections? There were not. 
The judge ushered us out for him to deliberate. We came back in a few minutes and were granted our petition to adopt her. To change her name to Joy Svetlana McNeil. That was that, 30 minutes in the courtroom and we were done. Of course, Rebecca and I knew what had gone before. Listen carefully now. We knew the hours of sorting through pictures of children in need. We knew the mountains of paperwork, the endless signatures and notaries. We knew the fingerprints and the plane tickets, the apartment rentals, the facilitator fees. We knew the cost. We knew the stinging pain of rejection and the late night of conversations when our hearts had been broken. We knew the weight of responsibility that we were taking on in lifelong implications. But joy did not. She had no experience with paperwork. She had no money for plane tickets. She had no understanding of parenting. Joy knew only that she needed, only what she needed to know, that she was in need of a family and that we were offering to be her parents. For Joy, her adoption is free. And that's the only way she can accept it. So even as we shoulder for Joy the burdens that she cannot carry, we are reminded, like joy, of what we most desperately need and do not have the means to purchase. The world gives stale satisfaction only to those who can pay. But the Lord gives bread and wine to those who come penniless and thirsty and are hungry for rich food that they cannot hope to afford. I wonder if there's ever been a blog post that was as stunningly biblical as that one. I want you to see it. The McNeils literally and spiritually chose joy instead of grumbling and complaint because they were living by faith out of the soil of their own adoption in Jesus Christ. And so it is meant to be with us, with me. The death of grumbling, I think, is found most succinctly in Galatians chapter 2. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. That is, the old Paul has died. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, I have a great need for Christ, and I have a great Christ for my need. Our need is that we need to be broken of grumbling and complaint and to live in the soil of our adoption. Jesus lived in the soil of his Father's infinite affection. And we have a great Christ for our need. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, 
thank you for the joy that is to be ours. Thank you for an infinite joy that can never be shaken nor taken. The first fruits of which we live in this life. Father, we pray that today you will cause us to make progress in the soil of grace, putting to death these things that we might shine more beautifully as luminaries in a dark world. And all of it we ask in our Savior's name.